There's no, with no review, but as though there had been no break at all. <laughs> Where we are then is in the Kirkegaardian world. And you must understand, you, you have two factors. You must understand this and you must understand this if you're going to really preach the gospel, it seems to me, to this type of person. And down here, people are the machine. So on the, on the side of reason, more and more people are feeling really the crunch of being treated like machines. One of the big cries at Berkeley at 64 and in many of the universities immediately after that is we're being treated like IBM cards. But you must understand that it's not surprising you're going to be treated like an IBM card if the philosopher, if the people in the university think you are an IBM card. I mean, this is, this seems to me to be what we can expect. And incidentally, in brackets, it's what we can expect in our entire society. I think it's what we can expect sociologically to increasingly come in all the fields and the professions that people will be treated like IBM cards because people really think they are IBM cards. Now this believes down here to some form of determinism. And of course it has come to its fruition uh, with Skinner's book, uh, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. This has been the, the most clear expression of it that has had universal acceptance uh, and raised universal discussion that there has been. There's some form of determinism or some form of behaviorism. So he would use the, so he is a behaviorist. And what he is, he believes, he believes in a behaviorism that is, uh, wherein we are only what we are by conditioning. So this is a part of the cosmic machine. I'm going slowly over all this because I hope really it's grounded into your bones after this series of lectures. Uh, that in reality, we are part of the cosmic machine. And being a part of the, part of the cosmic machine, all man is, is that which is uh, represented by determinism or by behaviorism. Or there's another word that you must have in your, in your vocabulary, and that is reductionism. And these are all basically the same, but they're in slightly different fields. They're in slightly different disciplines. Uh, but reductionism was the second explanation for evolution. The first uh, for naturalistic evolution. The first explanation was nature, red of tooth and claw, and the survival of the fittest, a, a, a simple Darwinianism. Then that was uh, replaced by, uh, by a reductionism. And reductionism is that you explain anything by reducing it to its smallest particles. It's a very simple word. So a lot of people don't seem to understand how simple it is. In other words, if you're going to explain a man, the way you explain the man is by reducing him to his energy particles. And this was the second explanation for, for naturalistic evolution. And the first one was set aside by the second, and among the real thinkers of the world, the second has been set aside, and they haven't found the third. Very interesting. That doesn't mean people are stopping believing in evolution. But the, there is no, um, there's no, there isn't the same kind of base under it that there was previously. But if you go ahead, uh, if you go ahead and you do any of this, you see, what you're doing with constantly is mathematics. Mathematics and machine, mathematics and machine, mathematics and machine, and all these disciplines. And very many disciplines coming at in slightly different ways, but man ending up on the downstairs as mathematics and machine. But upstairs, as we shall see as we go along a little further, what you end is a man, a man without categories. A man without categories upstairs. And I'll deal with this more largely in a little while. But it's the man without categories. In other words, without saying this is right as opposed to this being not right. It's a man in which you can't say, you can't make such statements as, uh, as in, cate in categories, this is, uh, this is one thing and this is another. 
And this carries into a lot of areas. I think it carries in the, the Hegelian synthesis, uh, and then this loss of categories has a lot to do with certain forms of homosexuality today, uh, where the, uh, the antithesis between male and female is lost, where you have only our sexuality. You must understand these things have repercussions in every part of life, even though people who are involved in them sometimes don't realize the relationships. Now, so remember then where we have come to is that man previously had believed in rationalism plus reason leading to a unified field of knowledge. Then we've come down and uh, we've come through Rousseau and we've come through Kant and Hegel and Kierkegaard and this is now set aside. And what men have done has given up, their, as I said last time, their hope of reason for the sake of their rationalism. It's the very opposite side of the coin of the same, same, same situation really uh, as the Enlightenment, where reason was king. And then reason has led to a dead wall, so now reason is not king. We do not live in an age of reason. We live in an age of mystics. It's a new kind of mysticism, a mysticism, as I stress, which is the magic mysticism, which is a mysticism with nobody there. And this is the heart of, uh, of the mark of our generation, uh, that men are mystical today, and they have accepted the fact that if you are going to, if you're going to really have any answers in the area of values and so on and meaning, uh, then it must be a completely separation, complete separation from reason. And this really must be 10,000 feet thick. As soon as any of this is allowed to creep into this, the hope is gone. And I think this is the, I think this is what modern man is. If anybody asks me for a quick definition of modern man, to me, modern man is the man who accepts the dichotomy in its upper and lower story. No matter how you express it, no matter what discipline it's expressed in, it is this. Now, I received a question this morning. Will you discuss, please, the strain, uh, the strain of antithetical thinking found in such thesis as all meaning is in the area of non-reason? There is no crossing of the line. Can anyone be completely Hegelian? And the answer is no. No, they can because God has made us with the categories of antithesis in our minds. And that, it fits into what my notes at this particular time. People have tried to curse rationality in our generation by bringing it in at certain points. A great number curse rationality by saying that, uh, that Aristotle brought it in, that before Aristotle there was, no, uh, there was no such position. This is the later Heidegger's position, that it was Aristotle who brought in uh, as, uh, the thinking in the area of antithesis. Uh, you also would have um, some people saying, Marshall McLuhan would say, for example, it came in with Gutenberg, the Gutenberg mentality of the, uh, the concept of antithesis being born with Gutenberg and the printing press. You have other people bringing in the uh, concept, a liberal, one of the liberal theologians of Princeton, University, of Princeton Theological Seminary a few years ago said that this kind of thinking was born at the Enlightenment and then quite... Then he said that he was cursing evangelicals as being caught in this. Uh, but in all these cases, they're wrong. Uh, there is something in the human mind which you cannot escape. Even if you say that you don't believe in, in a reason, you are an ant in the methodology of antithesis, you are caught in antithesis. Just as whoever asked this question quite properly points out, I think it's what he was trying to ask. Um, and that is, there is no other way to, to make a statement. And the, the, uh, the heart of this, <clears throat> I think the central part, uh, exhibition of it, rests on the fact that you can't deny antithesis except on the basis of antithesis. And this is not just a debater's trick, though I've used it in many discussions. But it isn't just a clever trick. It's when I say, I do not believe in antithesis, <clears throat> you are making an antithesis. 
And if it is, and you, you can't express the denial of antithesis except on the basis of antithesis. So we, we must understand that and answer this question, no, nobody really lives here because what you're trying to do is live in a world that doesn't exist, including the way God has made our minds. And of course, the tremendous final antithesis is whether God is there or not. And God is there as opposed to his not being there, and therefore there is an antithesis, which is a supreme antithesis. And God has made us with the categories of our mind to live in this kind of a universe. In the same way as Chomsky would point out certain basic things in basic grammar, that you can have all kinds of grammar, you can have Hebrew grammar, you can have Greek grammar and Spanish grammar, all kinds of grammar. But there are certain basic things in all forms of grammar simply because there's something in the mind, in the mind that demands these things in all forms of grammar. It's something the way God has made us. Levi Strauss, in some of his writings, well, we're far from Levi Strauss, yet Levi Strauss has stressed the same thing. So let us notice that reason, reason and the validity of reason, rationality as opposed to rationalism, is something that was not born with Aristotle. You mustn't be allowed to be placed into a position of a feeling of defensiveness. And that's what people try to do. They try to make you as an evangelical feel defensive because you are Aristotelian. You are not Aristotelian. This is something that there's no way to escape. As I say, the great climax of the unescapableness of it is that all these men talk in terms of antithesis and denying antithesis, which is a very profound thing. Now, the next thing, as you know, as I've stressed, is the factor that this has spread according to the discipline. <clears throat> and if it had only remained in the area of philosophy, without any question, it would have had very, very little impact on our culture. But it didn't. It rapidly spread through the other disciplines. And so you remember in my books, and in my, if you've heard me lecture previously, my line of despair. The line of despair is not just like this, and you cross it at a certain point, so it would be difficult to put a specific date on it, and then you cross it. But the line of despair is rather, it's a bent line, like a pair of stairs, in the sense that the men came under the line of despair uh, at uh, different points of time, depending on the different disciplines. And the first one was in the area of philosophy. So you come down through Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, Kierkegaard, and you're under the line of despair. So now here we will put Soren Kierkegaard. And Soren Kierkegaard had two branches, two branches to his, uh, to his, uh, what follows him. The secular branch, that leads to the existential theology, uh, philosophy, and you have, you have, this one leads to the existential theology. But they both come from the same source. And I want to talk a little bit at length on the uh, results in the existential theology. But first of all, we must see that these other steps took place first. So the theology came last. And the second one, as I always like to think of it, is art, which is parallel to what we saw in the, uh, in the High Renaissance. So it was the painters who picked up the new thought first. You see, human thought goes on pretty much in a straight line. And then suddenly you come to what I call an elbow of human thought. And the direction is completely changed. And there are just a few thinkers who change it. And then other people pick up this change of direction and carry it to the people. Now, this is exactly what occurred at the High Renaissance, in a way, in a very real way, and it's what has occurred uh, here with modern thought. And in the area of modern thought, you have art first. And I'll not go into the detail that I've gone into in uh, The God Who Is There, but I do think it's worth emphasizing for the sake of completeness in these lectures uh, that with Picasso's painting, with Picasso's painting, Damozel of Avignon, uh, you cross the line. Just as with Kierkegaard, you have crossed the line. 
And uh, previous to the post-Impressionists, you had the Impressionists, and the Impressionists were not under the line of despair. They were simply using art as, as wrestling with a new technical problem of how to say things differently in the area of light, especially. But the post-Impressionists who followed after the Impressionists, they were under the line of despair. So what you have here is you could put the Impressionists on the line, and you could put the post-Impressionists under the line. And the, you think of, I won't go into the details of the development of post-Impressionism, uh, but, but uh, it was with, with um, Picasso's Damozel of Avignon that the line is crossed. And in his Damozel of Avignon, uh, he uses various factors. He comes out of uh, he comes out of the older painting that was immediately before him. Uh, but in this in his philosophic event, he also picked up uh, from uh, from uh, African masks, and he brought all these together. He brought all these together. So what you have is a series of girls of nudes in the picture, and the Damozel Vignon is um, is mere, is from a, from Barcelona. It's a Spanish painting. In which the, uh, the, there was a house of prostitution on the street of Avignon, and the painting was of the girls in the house of prostitution on the street of Avignon. And it's the damoiselle, the girls of Avignon. But not Avignon in France, but Avignon in Barcelona, which is not much interest maybe to some of you, but those of you wrestling with these things, it's an interesting factor. And what he did was to paint, paint a series of figures. And the figures on the left hand side were more or less normal. And then the figures in the middle were really Iberian primitives, was what it would be called, something related to uh, something related to a primitive painting. But the girls on the extreme right were really monsters. They were no longer human. He had dehumanized them. The humanization was gone. As somebody, not myself, has expressed it, he had now produced monsters. He had now produced monsters, something very close to African masks, with all the personality gone, but with a fractured... Uh, with a fractured, uh, a fractured body. Uh, so what he was doing was expressing with a vehicle of his painting his philosophy. You remember, I think I've already, yes, I've already discussed about Niels Bohr and Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, who said that, uh, that he expressed his physics, his theories of physics on the basis of his philosophy. And a random universe in his philosophy led to a concept of a random universe in his physics. Well, it's the same here. Picasso's random concept of philosophy led to now a random presentation, a fractured presentation in the area of um, in the area of his painting. So what you've done now is begin to enlarge the circle of those who are getting the force of it. Previous to this, it had only been to uh, those who read philosophy. Now those who went to the art museums understood it, and the people of France rose up. They realized that they were facing a revolution in these paintings. But people didn't know how to meet the thing. And of course, a good reason, because they were not making it from a Christian base, and they were, without knowing it, they themselves stood in the same place, even though they may not have acknowledged it. So suddenly you have, you have these ideas of, uh, of a fractured universe, uh, and a lack of a unified field of knowledge spreading over, and the dehumanization of man because of it spreading out further, out through the art museums. And it began to have a tremendous impact. And you had uh, you had your army show here in New York and in Yale University, uh, and it was the first time pictures seen these pictures, uh, the new descending the stairway, these other pictures, and the newspapers didn't know how to handle them. And the United States was suddenly embroiled in the 20th century thinking in a way that it had never been before. 
And America was suddenly embroiled, and people could make fun of these pictures. But everybody sensed that something was happening here. Something was going on, Mr. Jones, if you want to press this way. Something was really, something was really boiling. And what it was was a complete different view of life. Completely different view of life. And these pictures, these pictures carry the impact of this to thousands and thousands and thousands of people who never would have been influenced by it if it had stayed only in the, only in the books. Uh, of um, uh, of philosophy, and then after this, it came into the area of music, and Debussy was the one. Debussy was the one who uh, uh, was the doorway into this. And then you come to all kinds of expression of it. So I don't want to get bogged down in this in these lectures. Uh, under the line of despair, but the best people to understand where music is in the line under the line of despair is John Cage. John Cage, the musician, and Merce Cunningham, the ballet man. And these carried it into its natural, into the natural sequence. They carried it into its natural conclusion of where this should lead. So John Cage, as you know from my books, if you've read them, even if you haven't read other places, uh, John Cage produced a chance music, a chance music, a music without meaning, a music without meaning, to be composed only, only by chance means, by flipping a coin so many times, thousands of times, in order to produce a piece of music. Uh, Produced it by later using I Ching, the Chinese book I Ching, uh, and throwing the arrow sticks uh, for the time, for the uh, for the notes, for the whole thing. And what you had was just great. You had silences and noise, and silence and noise, and silence and noise, and that is all. And then you must see that Merce Cunningham then picks this up and he puts it into his ballet. And thousands of people again who wouldn't have seen it, wouldn't have felt its impact in the art museum, feel it in the music. And thousands of people see it in the ballet, and they feel it in the music in the ballet. And it's spreading out like oil on water. It's spreading out like oil on water. The Damas, I, I should have looked it up before I came, but as I remember the Damasel Vigneau, it was painted in 1912. I think this is where we've come. We've come now very close to our own time. We're not 150 years ago of where the philosophers were working that led to all this. It's down in our lap by the year 1912. By the year 1912, it was very much in our lap. It was on every side. And people, even who, people who never analyzed it and still haven't analyzed it, became overwhelmingly, only overwhelmingly, uh, uh, overwhelmingly influenced by this. So what you had is this thing spreading out, spreading out, spreading out. And the thing that grieves me is that the evangelicals, I think, were the last ones to understand its implications. Maybe not the last ones, but if not the last ones, the next to the last one. It's a little, it's hard to understand why, if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we have the Spirit of Truth. And yet it's true, and I think there's something loaded in much of the evangelicals' attitude that led to this. A loadedness uh, that properly was against worldliness, but often identified worldliness as shutting yourself off completely from the surrounding culture, living in a, living in a, a uh, a moat-centered, a moat-centered castle with a drawbridge up, and as soon as any culture would touch upon your castle, you pour the oil over the wall, down on its head. And uh, the, I'm, I'm convinced that we were, we'd done, we had done something which was wrong. We had become platonic. We had had the wrong concept of worldliness. Though there's certainly a great need for, in a day like ours, for the stress against the properly against worldliness. Uh, but the uh, wrong concept of worldliness, and having a wrong concept of worldliness, we didn't understand, we didn't understand when these things came against us. And the change came without us being aware of it. We picked up our children's textbooks, and we knew something was wrong with them, and yet at the same time, we didn't have it isolated, and our children were overwhelmed. 
And this is where, as I see it, exactly, exactly our problem. So what you had is it's spreading out further and further and further. First of all, through the through art, and then through music, and then through what I would call general culture. And the man who opened the way in the Anglo-Saxon world uh, for uh, for the uh, uh, for this in the general culture was T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot and his poem, and his poem Wasteland, and in one poem everything changed. Suddenly it was in the area of literature. Suddenly it was the area of literature. The whole the whole fracturedness. So what these men were brilliant, you see. The men who provided the elbow in each field were brilliant men. We have to say to them they were brilliant. And they were being consistent to what there had been before in inconsistency. And what before had been there in inconsistency, now suddenly, suddenly, they become consistent. And they're consistent at the high point, among others, of making the form of their art conform to their message. And this is one of the... If I have time in this series of lectures, I'm not sure I will. I would like to once more give my lecture on art in the Bible and talk about something about the uh, some norms of, of our looking at art. I have a little booklet, one another one of these little university pamphlets about ready to be published on art in the Bible in this area. And one of the marks of, of genius in art is making your vehicle conform to your message. That there's a unity between the vehicle you use and the message you use, so the impact is titanic, and the vehicle does not does not uh, detract from your message, but the vehicle supports your message. It's one of the marks of genius, and, and T.S. Eliot was the man. Pond behind him, but T.S. Eliot, the man who brought this into the area of poetry, and he became overnight the hero of all the young poets, and he has influenced poetry tremendously. And then after he became a Christian, because people I know who have worked largely with his work and been experts in it are convinced he became a real Christian, one thing is certainly true, that toward the end of his life he reversed himself somewhat. And the interesting thing is he wrote differently. He wrote differently after he had become a Christian. And what you have is the, you have, but you see what you have is the fracturedness of life. Instead of the wholeness, instead of the hope of the wholeness of life, which would be portrayed by a Titian, uh, or a hope of a wholeness of life, which would be portrayed by uh, a Michelangelo, or even up into that awful dead period, the classical period of art, just before all this broke forth in the Impressionists. Uh, that terrible deadness of the classical period at that, in France, for example. Uh, they were still having the hope of a wholeness, and then suddenly, suddenly using the instruments given to them by the Impressionists, the post-Impressionists carried it further, and they said, life is fractured. There is no unity to life. And they picture it especially in dealing with the human body, that the human body is fractured, man is fractured, and spreads through art, through music, through the general culture, and then it begins to be disseminated by the mass media, and it comes down to the great mass of people, and comes down very rapidly. Uh, so now if you take 19, say let's say 19, I'll just choose a date out of a hat, uh, about 1920, when this began to be disseminated increasingly in the media, what you find is by this time, by this time, uh, we've had 50 years of people getting this kind of teaching on every front. So if you, there's no way to shut it out. The only way to shut it out is by God's grace understanding it and making decisions. You cannot shut it out by building walls. There is no castle so great that you can put your child in or your spiritual children in your church that they will be protected from these influences. If they don't go to the cinema, there is a television. If they don't look at the television and they read New York, they, use, they read Newsweek and Time, they've had it. They've absolutely had it. And what we're doing, we're surrounded by it, by a culture, a unity of a culture 
a homogenized culture almost, to such an extent, the monolithic culture, to such an extent that we're in the same position as the early church, where the early church was surrounded by the Roman Empire, not only the religion of the Roman Empire, but all the thought forms of the Roman Empire. And we are surrounded by the thought forms of, our, of this day. As I said before, you don't escape it just because you come from Japan or Korea. Because the Eastern thinking out of as it's become Western, we now have boxed it in Western boxes and shipped it back again to these countries. So the people in these countries have it twice. There is no escape. Let me just say that. It is like a London fog, a terrible London fog coming in through the door. There is no way to escape this, this, this um, culture which surrounds us on every side. A culture which is under the line, under the line and its face. And then finally we come into the area where Kierkegaard has influenced the theology, has influenced the theology, and we come to Karl Barth. And Karl Barth is the doorway, and now theology saying the same thing. So the amazing thing is, is the church begins to say the same thing as everything on every side, using different terminology. But while using different terminology, that does not change the fact that they're saying the same message. And you must see the curve, the curve the theology follows. I have a thesis, as you know, if you read my church before the watching world, and the thesis is that in reality, the liberal theology never brings forth anything new. As, as, as naturalistic thinking turns one way and another way, twists and turns in the secular world, I believe that the theology, liberal theology, always simply conforms to the twists and turns in using religious terminology. This is my, what I believe concerning liberalism. The liberalism is never anything new. Liberalism is never anything new. And you can see that here. We must understand why we reject liberalism. We do not reject liberalism because of scholarship. We should be the ones who are most involved with the scholarship of the scriptures. And we are interested in establishing the best text. And we of all people should be, be interested in establishing the best text. Because to us, the original manuscript was, it was really straight from God. So it's important to us to do what we can to establish the best text. But liberal theology goes beyond the establishing of the best text. Whether you, whether, whether you want to call it lower and higher criticism or something else, and German negative criticism, so be called, called on the continent, regardless of what you call it. The, the theological liberalism goes beyond establishing the best text. After they have the best text, then they subjectively tell you what can be the text not on objective basis, but a subjective basis, one whether it fits their grid or not. And liberalism does this. Liberalism rose at the same period. Liberalism rose at the same period. The naturalistic thinking was uh, was coming forward in the um, in the non-theological world. You could put a date if you want to date 250 years ago, something like this. All these dates are rough because it didn't come overnight. Uh, there was a, a movement of these dates. But 250 years ago would be a good date in which uh, the, the theological faculties of German beca Germany became naturalistic. They became naturalistic. They began, uh, they were surrounded by the naturalism that had come in, and now if I was giving a full lecture on this subject, I'd bring you over, I'd be at a point where I would bring in the shift of science. Remember my lectures, which I carefully gave in these last few days, on the shift of science, from natural science, from modern science rather to modern, modern science from the uniformity of natural causes in an open system to a natural uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. And the these theologians in Germany were surrounded by this shift until the theologians were isolated from the rest of the faculties. 
as it was almost, it was overwhelmingly accepted. And I cannot prove the point at all, but I personally would make a guess that I would think would be right, and that is the fact that these people must have come to a, to a repetitive orthodoxy rather than a living orthodoxy, or they wouldn't have given in. They wouldn't have succumbed. There's two kinds of, I think there's a, I think you can make a, 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 a statement in general about church history, and that is you move from a living orthodoxy, the orthodoxy with a burning heart, until you, into a dead repetitive orthodoxy, and then comes some form of heterodoxy. And I think the crucial moment is not the passing from the dead orthodoxy uh, to the, uh, to the heterodoxy. The crucial moment is passing from the living orthodoxy to the dead orthodoxy. And when you've done this, you have already sealed the fate of Christianity's message at that point. And it's a place we must fight all the time. And Romans 1 would emphasize this. Uh, how did they turn from God? Uh, as Paul speaks in Romans 1. Well, they turn because they, well, they stopped giving thanks. When we stop giving thanks, we are in the slippy place. We are finished. All we have to do is have a few years and either we or our children or our grandchildren will move into some form of heterodoxy. And I would guess that this must have, must have been the case. It was enough time had passed from the, uh, from the Reformation so that it would have been uh, not surprising, unhappily, uh, if uh, there had been a form of repetitive orthodoxy. And the theology did not, and you must never let yourself be backed up. Liberalism was not born because of certain facts that made them become liberal. They became liberal because they conformed. If you get that into your bones, it'll save you many an hours of tears. If you really get this into your bones, they did not become liberals in their theology because of facts. They became liberals in order to conform, and they've been conforming ever since. I'm talking about theology up here now, before the line of despair. Before the line of despair. So what you find is that that theology had become naturalistic. And it was a naturalistic framework. And this has been the when I was younger, uh, and the battles were being fought out in California, for example, the terminology was the difference between natural, natural theo- naturalistic theology and supernatural theology. And these were good terms, because this really was what, this is really what the battle's all about. And liberalism took on the natural, naturalistic presuppositions. Now notice how this parallel, notice how this parallel, uh, the, the curve, the curve of, uh, of naturalistic secular thinking. Because, as I said over and over again, prior to this time, the philosophers were optimistic. They were they sure that on the basis of the rationalism plus reason, they would be able to come up to a unified knowledge, a unified field of knowledge. The liberals, on the basis of their naturalism or rationalism plus reason, were certain that they were going to be able to do the job that they thought they wanted to do. And that was, especially in the Gospels, to separate the supernatural that the Gospels have about Jesus from the historical Jesus. This was the the fulcrum of the discussion. Because they had accepted the grid uh, of naturalism, they were embarrassed by the supernatural in the scriptures, and specifically and especially the supernatural concerning the history of Jesus. They were embarrassed by it. And they were certain, they were optimistic. They were totally optimistic that they were going to be able to get rid rid of, uh, of these things 
get rid of the supernatural and still find the historical Jesus. It was an optimism. And then you come, of course, in your secular thinking to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, and Kierkegaard, where you hit a wall. You hit a wall at this point. And the optimism flees. And with these, with Kierkegaard and Rousseau and so on in the area of secular thinking, what you find is that suddenly, uh, suddenly they found that they were not going to be able to find an answer to all of life on the basis of the rationalism plus the reason. And interestingly enough, if you're reading the theology immediately following this other discussion, bringing this up closer here to our own day, the theology was coming to the same problem. And that is, you went from the optimism to optimism being stopped. And we can put a clear date on when the optimism was stopped in theology. And that is with the publication of Schweitzer's Quest of the Historical Jesus. Schweitzer carried this to its conclusion. He carried to its conclusion the attempt to get rid of the supernatural and still keep a historical Jesus. And he failed. And everybody knew he failed. It was a failure. It was a failure. And suddenly they realized that they were not going to be able to separate the historical Jesus from the supernatural. Because in the Gospels it is so intertwined that if you keep any historic Jesus, you keep some supernatural. And if, on the other hand, you get rid of all the supernatural, you have no historic Jesus. It's as profound, as profound and simple as this. I repeat, that is, it's so intertwined in the Gospels that if you get rid of all the supernatural, you have no historic Jesus. And on the other hand, if you keep any historic Jesus, you have to keep some of the supernatural. And suddenly, don't you see, don't you see that in their own theological discussions, they were at exactly the same place when the philosophers had come. There wasn't one iota difference. And I, I think it's a tragedy that our, our men who were really faithful to the scriptures uh, at, that, at those particular years did not really, had not been enough in contact with secular thinking to realize it was only a deja vu thing. If they had understood the philosophers, they would have understood the theology. And it wouldn't have taken any time for it to click and fall into place because it was exactly following the same curve. The only reason that neo-orthodoxy and Bardianism uh, confused, confused the evangelical and orthodox camp to the extent to which it did confuse it, not all men were confused, was simply because men acted as though this was something new in the work. It took them by surprise. But it shouldn't have taken by surprise. So you find that the first step then was an optimism of thinking they could separate the historical Jesus from the supernatural and then they were brought to a dead end. And they found that they were not able to do this and they were brought completely, completely to a dead end. Now, in both secular, secular rationalism and religious rationalism or humanism, what you find is, you see, at this particular point you could have moved in either direction in this particular point or this particular point you could have moved in one of two directions and kept the reason. So their pride of reason and their proper emphasis, not only pride of, but their proper emphasis on the validity of reason could have been maintained by doing either one of two things in both the area of the secular and the area of the religious. And that is, in both cases, in both cases, they could have become nihilists. They could have said there are no answers. They could have given up totally concerning it to pessimism, concerning all knowledge, either secular or, in the case of the theologian, uh, theological. In other words, I want to talk about Nietzsche in a few minutes, or today or tomorrow, but they could have really accepted Nietzsche's concept of, of real nihilism. 
Or they could have done the other and still equally maintained a point for place for reason and the validity of reason. And that is they could have denied their rationalism. They could have said we've been wrong and this idea of rejecting all knowledge and especially all knowledge from God has been a mistake and we will look, the secular man could have said, we will look around to see if there is a place for knowledge which is not humanistic and the theologians could have said we will give up our liberal theology and accept what our forefathers believed, and that is that there is knowledge that is not from man, not generated from man, autonomous man, that is knowledge from God. In other words, they could have accepted revelation. Now, the thing to notice is they could have done either one of these two and equally have held on to their reason. They could have done either one. Either one would have been, they would have held on to the reason. To follow the reason to the natural conclusion of rationalism, which is a nihilism, or to turn around and deny their rationalism. And the secular thinkers could have done this, and the the uh, the liberal thinkers could, I mean, the liberal theologian thinkers could have done it either. The both of them, they, these both both sides could have done it. Either one could have done it. Um, but instead of that, in both the area of the secular thinking with Kierkegaard, concluding with Kierkegaard, and in the in the religious thinking, concluding with Karl Barth. They did what had been unthinkable to all educated men before, and that is they gave up the hope of a unified field of knowledge. You must see that in both the religious and the non-religious, they chose to maintain their rationalism at the expense of their reason. Exactly what they did. They have sacrificed reason for their rationalism. Now, there were two men who blazed away here. Uh, we talk about Karl Barth because he is more important worldwide and certainly in our own field. But also in, in Scandinavia, there was a Bishop Nygren. A Bishop Nygren. And what Karl Barth did in the Reform world, uh, Nygren did in the Lutheran world. And what they did was to accept the new view of a divided field of knowledge. You must understand that Karl Barth, and this is really important because we have many evangelicals now praising Barth. We must understand that Karl Barth, to the day of his death, never gave up the higher critical theory. This is really a very important thing to have engraved on your, somewhere on you, that you never forget. He never, 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 never gave up the higher critical theory. In other words, he still continued the thing which had made rationalism in theology rationalism. But before this, there had been the hope, as I've said, that on the basis of the rationalism plus reason, they would have a unified and entity by keeping a historical Jesus to follow and getting rid of the getting rid of the supernatural. Now suddenly this is impossible. And instead of returning to the supernatural, Karl Barth accepts this divided this divided field of reference. So what you have is the historical and doctrinal portions are can, are put down here, and then you have a religious experience up here. So what just like the existential theologians, as we'll see in a few moments, put their emphasis upon an existential experience. So, Karl Barth and those who follow him put their emphasis upon a religious experience. A religious experience that is completely devoid. Um, if I had this on the board again, the 10,000, my line, 10,000 feet thick. Completely devoid, completely devoid of any of being able to ask questions. Completely devoid of being able to ask, ask questions. And this is, the, this is the essence of Karl Barth's position. And in his first Romer brief, in the first issue of the Roma Brief, he acknowledged his indebtedness to Soren Kierkegaard. He never did further. But if you read in his second volume of Dogmatics where he deals with epistemology, it's very clear that his epistemological view is Kierkegaardian. So it is, and he never gave this up. 
Karl Barth could have Karl Barth. People often ask, do you think he changed at the end of his life? Well, he changed some ways because his his disciples, his followers, such as Tillich, were really taking going further than he wanted to go. But having said this, he never gave up the distinction of that which made Karl Barth Bardian, and that is this divided field of divided field of of, of, of area. So what you have what you have in the um, down here is it simply follows the same curve. And here's my big line of division in which, and if, you, if you've read Karl Barth, my description of the Kirkland's Guardian Leap of Faith in contrast to Biblical Leap of Faith is clearly in order for Karl Barth. You're talking about a Christ that you can't ask anything about. And what you have then in the area of, in the area of reason, you have all kinds of mistakes in the Bible. The Bible has all kinds of mistakes in it. But nevertheless, in the area of non-reason, you believe it anyway in the area of religious things. And what you've done is to separate religious things from those things which are open to any kind of verification or discussion. And this is the heart of Bardianism. So as you're studying the what you have to preach the gospel into in our generation and why the revolution came in Berkeley, you must understand the church was adding to the flow. The church was not now, the theologians were not uh, diverting from the flow. The church, the church was very clearly adding to the flow. So what you have down here is, is that what you can see very easily that all you have is the word God. And then the God is dead theologian said, well, then why use the word God? And they were completely, completely right, I would say, on the basis of their own basis. And up here, what you have is a God in which all personal concept of God is dead, and a God in which all content about God is dead. So down here, the thing drifted into a God is dead theology. Up here, you drifted into an area where any any concept about any any. Uh, content about God is dead, and certainly any concept of a personal God is dead. And by the time you get to Tillich, the whole thing is completely formulated in this very simple and yet very devastating kind of a thing. And so when the world turned to art, it saw a certain thing. When it turned to the music, it saw a certain thing. When it turned to the poets, it saw a certain thing. When it turned to the theologian, it heard the same thing. The only difference was that you were using theological, theological language. So you must realize you must realize that we must reject neo-orthodoxy totally. It isn't the case of it having some good things and some bad things. There are some things in Karl Barth and others you can read if you read it in your own framework, and it seems to be helpful. But when you take it as a system, as a system is just part of the whole structure of the of the modern the modern birth of human thought, of the human modern emphasis in human thought. So what you have, you must realize that in a way they are further from us than the old, the old, uh, the old people uh, of um, uh, of the liberals, because the old liberals would say Christ wasn't raised from the dead, but at least they were using the methodology of antithesis and they were using the normal words and the normal grammar. When you listen to the neo-orthodox theologian, they are denied antithesis. Why can the Roman Catholic Church say some of them, some in the Roman Catholic Church, such as Panikkar, uh, that the uh, that the Hindu the Hindu rites are, are are really sacraments. Well, they can say it because it's all Hegelian. Everything is everything is to be blended together. Insufficient, incomplete. That's right. Incomplete sacraments, but nevertheless sacraments. Well, because there is no right and wrong. There is no antithesis whatsoever. So if you take 
If you take Harry Emerson Fosdick, he would say Christ was not raised from the dead. And this would seem to be the absolute antithesis of our position, but it isn't. There's something which is a greater antithesis, and that is to deny antithesis and talk about the resurrection of the dead and not mean the resurrection of the dead. They are further from us than the old liberals. And I just weep when I see the new, the evangelical uh, quoting uh, quoting Karl Barth. Uh, Billy Graham's book, World of Flame, was a great book, but in many, many ways. The one thing that totally, I think, made it a destructive book is the way he praised Karl Barth. Forgetting that Karl Barth is not just a collection of some good things and some bad things, that Karl Barth is an expression of this kind of thinking on a theological level. So these men are further from us, they're further from us than the old liberals. So a new theology... You can only, I think you can only understand the new orthodoxy on this kind once you've started with philosophy and gone through the other disciplines. I don't think you can understand any other way, my opinion. I think everybody else gives in too much because they don't understand really what it is. So the new theology is only modern thought really using religious words. It is under the line of anthropology. And new theology is faced not with a personal God but with a philosophic other. A philosophic other that is both unknown and unknowable. God is unknown and he's unknowable. There is no content, there is no place for reason to function whatsoever. It doesn't, there's no place there. Or you can say the new theology is in the circle of the finite, with no meaning or authority beyond what man can give unto it. In other words, the new theology, the neo-orthodoxy, in other words, what you find is that man is on his own with only religious words instead of religious truth. All these ways are ways say the same thing. Or finally you can say, and that is, there is nothing in common between the new orthodoxy, uh, neo-orthodoxy, the Bardian theology, uh, and those especially who develop it more logically than um, as they go along. There's nothing in common between that and Christianity except the use of some words in common, using those words with absolutely different definitions. Completely different definitions. So now we have come down through the development of this uh, in, uh, in philosophy, in art, in music, in general culture, all too rapidly, mind you, but at least we've, I wanted to link it together in a single lecture, and then the theology. And then, uh, the Lord willing, tomorrow morning we go on from there.